0: You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Retail Remix. Last week, you had the chance to meet today's guest, Melissa Gonzalez, founder and CEO of the Lioness Group. Today, we dig a little bit deeper into what she believes are the key trends in experiential retail in 2020. It's a very chaotic but exciting time for retailers because we're digging into the new trends and opportunities, and specifically the new role of the store, which is right in Melissa's sweet spot. During our conversation, we go through some of her experiences working with brands from Nordstrom to Purple on their experiential strategies, the evolving role of pop ups, and ultimately how brands can determine. What stories they should be telling, and what technologies they should be using in stores. Frankly, it's something that both of us kind of geek out over, and we could have gone on and on, but I think our conversation really calls out the key points and key considerations for you if you plan to embrace experiential in 2020. Melissa, thanks so much for taking the time out. Thanks for having me. So you're obviously our go-to person about everything related to pop-ups, experiential retail. So I thought it was only right that we did kind of a check-in on progress, especially over the last year, because I feel like the whole notion of experiential retail and the importance of pop-ups or temporary retail shops really rose to the top. So, would love your take on the progress that's been made over the last year and, and of course, all the exciting things that you guys are doing at the Lioness Group.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. When I first wrote my book The Pop-Up Paradigm, people said, you know, this is a fad. What are you going to build your business on? And now it's become mainstream. And so, pop-up retail is not going away. It's going to just continue to evolve. A lot of things we saw last year was the average length of a pop-up really growing. So in the beginning, you know, the average pop-up was a month at the longest. And last year, we opened a handful in the fourth quarter that are going to be a year long. And the purpose of pop-up continues to evolve. It's not just for marketing. It's also for testing new partnerships, new product launches, but also testing the viability of long-term retail. And as you're seeing a lot more of D2C brands grow, they're hitting this threshold where cost of acquisition, online only, is becoming extremely cost prohibitive. And so they're turning to physical, understanding like we need that touch point to really build a human connection and build brand loyalty. Yeah, that's excellent.
0: And to the end, you've had some very exciting projects over the past year with big brands, testing new concepts, but also those small DTC disruptors as well. So why don't you share a little bit about the landmark projects that you're most proud of? Sure, yeah. Last year we had a lot of exciting projects. Um, we worked with Nordstrom to
1: bring local to New York City. So we helped them open their first store in the Upper East Side. And that was exciting because you know you have a mass retailer that obviously knows physical retail and does it successfully in full line stores and in, in racks. But this is a new store format. And it's all about services. And it's got a different ROI around it. So really exciting to be able to work in that space where You're just seeing different forms of of store concepts come to light. And then on the D2C side, Purple Mattress is an example of a brand we worked with. Uh, We helped them open five locations in the fourth quarter of last year. So really, they're really leaning into physical and understanding that with their price point and with their product, people need to touch feel. The majority of sales for mattresses still happen in store. So, you know, there's only so much that can happen online only. And then also Sarah Flint's another exciting designer, graduate from Parsons here in New York City, opened a store. It was wildly successful. She had an amazing calendar of in-store events um, with Carly Kloss and and other celebrity fans of hers. So just, yeah, just seeing and really them leaning into understanding that it's about telling your story in the space. It's not just about selling a product and being transactional. You could do that online. So really needing to bring something different and special to the physical location. So I have
0: a few follow-up questions regarding that, because what what I really enjoy about all of our conversations is that it all ties back to the underlying strategy, right? You always say there has to be a core objective guiding your approach, and there also have to be metrics associated with that. But... I also feel like there are a lot of conversations around speed to market, you know, being able to be the first to show a new cool concept. So, would love your take on that tug of war that retailers are are kind of grappling with now. And also, have the rules changed or evolved over the past year because this market is So exciting and lively now, but also more competitive now.
1: Absolutely. So one of the things that we are unveiling this week here at NRF is the Lioness Group actually is merging with a global architecture firm called MG2. And so to your question, that's exactly why this merger happened. It's because on one side of the spectrum, we work a lot with these fast growing D2C brands that are going into physical and it's not their core competency and we're helping them soup to nuts with everything from site selection to operational strategy to store design. But on the flip side, they work with mass retailers and brands that are saying, we need to carve out opportunities to be more nimble in our physical footprint, shop and shops, being able to turn over a store floor quickly, being able to flex for events, being able to like really think differently about the physical footprint. It might be for a distribution. Think how many stores are now incorporating buy online, pick up in stores right? So their physical asset is serving so many more purposes, and they're really needing to work with partners that help them across the spectrum of what they're going to need across physical.
0: And then after you establish those needs and the objectives and kind of build that framework, you said it before, the importance of a really strong story. And I'm really glad that the retailer conversations have evolved from Let's pack as many products on the floor as possible so people can discover and and hopefully buy more to how can we curate and get the right products in front of people so they get a bit more immersed into our stories. So to the end, how do they do that? I mean, the rules of good storytelling are constantly evolving, especially as digital influence increases and, you know, remains ever present but also there are other audience considerations, like what are their values, what are their lifestyles, and how do we connect at that deeper level and that personal level that they want. For sure, yeah, I think that there's
1: a more holistic approach now as they're evaluating their physical footprint portfolio and understanding that not every location serves the same purpose. And you're seeing it, you know, whether it's IKEA doing studios so that helps with urban design, right? Because what I need in my apartment is going to be very, very different than if I lived in a house. Um, and understanding those markets on that level, all the way to like what Foot Lockers did with opening their neighborhood store in Washington Heights. And that's all about building community. And they interviewed the whole community before they decided what they were going to lean into. And one of the top drivers of traffic and dwell time in that location is kids having a place to do homework, right? And so think of the human connection that creates. And they actually have been exceeding their goals in sales because of that stickiness and that brand loyalty that they're creating. And so I think across the board, people are thinking of it. Consumers are getting a lot more open-minded to drop ship. And so they don't always expect to walk out with goods now. So the whole shoppable showroom concept, people are getting more receptive to. And it's not equal across all product and all category and all price points. So I think there's still a lot of discovery to be had there. But overall, I think they're saying, we all understand transactional standpoint is being solved by mobile and desktop. When stores were first created, that was the only way you could transact. That is not the case anymore. So what purpose physical serves varies from geography to geography, if it's an urban area, if it's a suburban area, and so it's really evaluating all of those things, and I think more and more they're getting
0: savvy to that. Yeah, And you've touched on a few different examples throughout our conversation, but are there any brands that have really gotten that storytelling mission, that that purpose mission, right? Or at least is there a, a really interesting use case or example that our listeners can learn from and at least take some inspiration from? Yeah, I
1: mean, from a community standpoint, I'm definitely a big fan of what Foot Locker's done in Washington Heights. I think it was so smart to go into the market in the way in which they did. And, you know, storytelling can have many elements to it. So when you look at, for example, the third love pop-up that happened in Soho, they told the story of, we really care about fit. They dedicated such a large portion of their square footage to fitting rooms because that is one of their core value propositions. So it's really really like leaning into understanding what's our mission and what's our story and having that lead to discussion of how do we utilize store footprint versus what's my capacity and how much product can I put on the floor because that's the part that's going to build the human connection. I think Puma with their new store on Fifth Avenue, you know, the way they've created this immersive environment incorporating digital and you really feel like, you know, you're on the soccer field when you're wearing the sneakers and stuff like that. Like that's what consumers want. That's what they're craving. And I think it's great in the way they which they did it because they didn't lean into VR. They actually created an immersive environment. And I think you're going to see a lot more budget dedicated to digital and AV and bringing some of those elements into store experiences. I am
0: so glad you brought up tech and the rising or potential uh, increase in digital budgets for brick and mortar, because I wanted to break out tech separately in this conversation, because I do think in the early days or, you know, there was a period there that everyone was like, what cool tech can we, you know, test and what can we roll out to really wow our customers? And those... Rules have sort of evolved a little bit, but I do have to ask. I mean, what what exciting tech use cases are rising to the top? Because you think about the potential of AR and VR, mobile integration, um, you know, touch screen, even you know, there are some cool things that came out of CES. So I mean, what what's really rising to the top for you in terms of possibilities?
1: Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot with digital screens and touch screens for sure. Um, it's amazing to see like what happened with QR codes last year. They finally got their day after so long of nobody really adopting that. RFID to a point, I still think it's a little bit cost prohibitive and, and more challenging infrastructure for it to really become mainstream, but I think a lot of the big guys will continue to use that and creating these opportunities for consumers to interact in the dressing room or um, mobile checkout. You're seeing that being adopted more and more. You know, two years ago, it was like 4% of people doing it. And now more and more because you see the leaders like Starbucks and people making it feel so frictionless. The Nike store, you know, you shop, you download the app. So a lot of it's going to make sense to the community you've built too, right? Those are brands where like, for example, Nike, they have this captive audience that already engaged with their app because of the workout content and other things. So it was seamless to say, oh, you can also purchase this way. So I think there's gonna have to be a holistic approach by brands and retailers of figuring out, like how do we, technology is best served if it's not changing consumer behavior, it's enhancing it. So they really have to lean into thinking like, well, what are our customers doing today? And then how do I up the ante in that? I think beauty is doing a great job with it. I, you know, I love, how a lot of them are utilizing augmented reality and i think in the in the cosmetic category that makes a ton of sense if you think about it it's much easier than us going into a store and having to wash our face off after trying on lipstick and and all of that i love what the chanel atelier is doing in soho where you go in you build an online account you get to play it's really a beauty workshop it's not a store and you're getting expert advice there's not really a lot of pressure to shop but You go into your online profile and you know everything you tried, everything you played with, and with a click of a button, you can then purchase it. So I think it's experiences like that that you're going to see more and more.
0: Yeah, and I love that you brought up the cosmetic category because I do think it's like a, well, yeah, obviously, because if someone's shopping through digital, that was always the gap, right? It, it's like, okay, this is a pretty color, but what is it going to look like on my skin tone? And what if I wear, you know, a certain kind of outfit or dress? Like, is the color going to clash? I mean, there are so many considerations that go into that buying process. So, seeing that evolution from, like, initially it was just Snapchat filters and then it's Instagram filters, and now it's actually full-on mirror experiences, you know, whether it's through Sephora's online shopping experiences or in-store like you just shared. So, with that, you know, we're talking about the future, trend casting, what, what's to come, what are the possibilities, what are the broader expectations for experiential retail just because there is so much possibility and opportunity for retailers? um, You know, where where do you see this heading? I think there's gonna be a lot more
1: being done in personalization. I think personalization has been done in buckets up until now. It's still done according to different persona buckets, right? But I think it's gonna get more one-to-one. And I I think I don't think it's gonna all happen this year, but there's gonna be more of that concerted effort of like really understanding me as a customer versus you as a customer versus the next person. You know, the landing pages we see on e-commerce, clienteling when you walk into a store, them understanding your past purchases, being able to make really personalized recommendations based on what I bought or what I browsed or, you know, really understanding what converts me to shop. You know, you might care about free shipping, I might care about a sale. Like, really understanding that, I think, is going to be a big push. Again, Avian Digital, I think, is going to have good budget allocation um, in store. I think mobile checkout more and more. Um, You brought up Sephora before, for example. I think, in so many ways, their digital experience has been so on point. Like, it's one of the best shopping experiences online. And then you go into the store and the lines are, enormous, you're waiting forever to check out, and it's like you're thinking to yourself, this is a major disconnect, because my online experience with them is so seamless. So you're starting to see that happen in store too. Um, so I think that's going to be a big one and I think
0: consumers are
1: ready for it.
0: And then I, I do want to clarify, so when you say mobile checkout, is that like akin to the model of like Amazon Go where it's just you scan and pay and go or are there nuances there? Because I think that, that payment space It's huge, there, yeah. there's a big opportunity there. For sure.
1: I think you'll see three buckets. I think you'll see, you'll still see the handheld by the store associate kind of like the Apple Store experience where they can just walk up to you and scan you out what you like, so adding that to more seamless. There's going to be environments where you're doing it through your own phone, like Nike, and I think you're going to see more of that with the mobile pay. And then I think there's going to be some in the space where they're leaning into technologies that are comps to Amazon Go, and they're going to create that frictionless checkout experience, especially in like the convenience store space. Got it, wonderful.
0: To, to round out our conversation, I have to ask, again, just given how this space has seemingly exploded over the past year. I mean, it's been consistent over the years, but I mean, I feel like 2019 has really been a landmark year. Personally and professionally, what has been the proudest moment for you as the CEO uh, of the Lioness Group and now going on this new exciting adventure for your business? Yeah, I think about that, it's so hard. Um, so I'll, tr- I'll quickly try to say
1: too, Penguin Random House hired us a couple years ago to bring a bookstore to San Juan, Puerto Rico. And I actually didn't realize it was something I would be as proud of as I was until we opened doors. And uh, most people didn't realize that it was such a gap in the market when Barnes and Nobles went bankrupt In North America, San Juan was the second highest grossing market in the North America. People didn't realize that. So there was such a gap in the market for books and that we could collaborate with such a major publisher and a local distributor to bring books via pop-up. There were just lines down the mall. The mayor showed up. We sold hundreds of books the first day. People of all ages from like 18 to 80 were just so excited to touch and feel a book and reminded you that physical books still matter. And they actually preferred it over digital because we surveyed them the first weekend. And it was so successful that not only did they extend the pop-up into a permanent store, they expanded the footprint. So it was so exciting to be part of being able to bring that. And then the second would be IRL, what we did with GGP before they were acquired with Brookfield, because that was kind of the, an early iteration of the, the new department store, and you've seen that really expand now in the market with Showfield, the Neighborhood Goods, and Randbox. But we were really early with that, and we were able to integrate this RFID um, shopping platform, and just having the opportunity sometimes to create an environment that really
0: leans into thought leadership. Is really clear. No, it's wonderful. I mean, it's obviously, it's clear just based on the work that we've done together and just, you know, watching all of the amazing things your company is doing, you're always a few steps ahead and helping to drive that positive change in the industry. So, it's, it's really been exciting to see and, and just constantly be in touch and see all the great things you guys are doing. But, well, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.